You're listening to Curious Conversations About Sex, and my name is Rog. Please be mindful that some topics might be great stuff for younger people to listen to, and some might not. Curious Conversations About Sex is brought to you by Curious Creatures, who run a variety of workshops on related topics in Australia. Find Curious Creatures and submit your questions for us to answer at curiouscreatures.biz, B-I-Z. Today we're chatting with Niati Evers and Anne Hunter. Uh, Niati, who are you? <laughs> um, that's always like a very big question, but I'll keep it short for this purpose. Um, so I'm a sex positive therapist. I currently live in Portland, but I'm originally from Amsterdam, but also lived in South Africa for a long time. And I studied process work uh, at the Process Work Institute in Portland. And I'm also a facilitator and teach workshops and classes on sexuality. Hmm, fantastic. Great to have you with us. And Anne, who are you? I, I'm a, um, not a relationships coach specializing in non-monogamy. Um, I co-founded PolyVic, Melbourne's oldest poly community, um, and I have been um, a facilitator of the poly community for the last 12, 13 years. Um, and I also happen to be involved in process-oriented psychology at the moment as well. Fabulous. Uh, so great to have uh, you with us as well. And so to today's question, how do you learn to trust partners again after abuse? So, interesting question. I think we'll, uh, uh, we might uh, start with your response, Anne. Um, but just uh, I noticed that there's a bit of ambiguity in the question in that the person asking this question might be talking about an existing partner who has been abusive that they are looking to stay with, or they could be talking about um, uh, future partners or existing partners following uh, an abusive uh, situation back in the past. So feel free to answer uh, this question in any way that's right for you. Um, yeah, Anne, what are your thoughts on how do you learn to trust partners again after abuse? Yeah, it's such a juicy question. And whether somebody's asking from the point of view of a, an existing partner or um, having had um, abuse in the past. I think my answer would be the same. My experience uh -huh. with this stuff is that is that the thing that I had to learn to do was to trust myself, to learn to listen to um, my own signals, my own internal um, signals of what wasn't working for me, mm. um, and to learn to to value myself. And this was not an easy journey because I came from a conservative Christian background where uh, I was absolutely not in quite discouraged from trusting myself, valuing myself. Effectively, if I was ever in conflict with um, an older male, I was wrong. That was kind of the world I grew up in. So learning to learning that I could actually genuinely listen to myself and trust myself Learning the difference between my internal um, sort of knee-jerk ego responses and what was actually a fundamental, no, this is not okay with me. All of those things, they took time. But for me, learning to value my own responses and my own needs and to be able to say, look, I, d I don't know, you know, um, I, don't, I don't actually – 
um, care if this doesn't work for you, this is what I need. So it's it's quite interesting, and listening to you talk about it, um, it, it your your answer is very much about yourself, uh, and it sounds like like I'm, I'm sure it wasn't the only thing that was lost during uh, the uh, experiences you speak of, but your trust of yourself sounds like it was crucial in that. Mm, yes, it really was. I think what I observe of people who um, there are people who manage to stay in relationships where they have felt um, abused, but it takes an extraordinary amount of work on the part of everybody involved and a really fundamental commitment to change mm. from the – I dislike the terms perpetrator and victim. I really don't because I think there are a yeah, lot of I... interesting dynamics that go on. Um, in this, um, yeah. but w when somebody is feeling that somebody else is doing something to them, there needs to be a recognition of that and a willingness to change that dynamic. But also, I found that I needed to change my own contribution to to the dynamic. Now, let me make something really, really clear because immediately <laughs> yes. everybody yes. wants to go. Don't blame the victim, yes. and I'm yes. with that. I am really with that. Yes. I've seen victim blaming and the damage that that can do. However, yes. I also realized that one of the reasons I went along with this system that was abusive to me was that I wanted something out of it. And the thing that I wanted out of it was for there to be safe people in the world that I could just trust because they were Christian elders or Christian leaders. I wanted mm -hmm. that system because it made life easier for me because I didn't have to think my way all the way through everything. And I had to learn to accept responsibility for thinking my way through everything and listening to all of myself. Yeah, so it, it took uh, change on my part as well. Yeah, it, it is difficult. I like that you draw us away from the black and white dichotomy of um, a perpetrator and a victim because her life is so much more complicated than that. Mm -hmm. But as you say, um, uh, we have to somehow have that conversation in a way that doesn't wind up being victim-blaming. Mm, uh, absolutely, because yeah. I've been the victim of victim-blaming. And it's, <laughs> it's really awful when you are in the yeah. space of having, you know, this desperately difficult thing happen to you and being told, oh, you, you failed in this way and, you know, you caused it, you, you, you know, that I would yeah. never, ever, ever want to inflict that on anybody. It's terrible. But also, yeah, it's the whole, it's the whole second layer of of horror sitting on top of the absolutely. horror. And, and and I'm sure the three of us will easily join together in saying that no one under any circumstances ever deserves to be at the receiving end of uh, abuse, physical abuse, or etc. Or emotional abuse. Yes, absolutely. thank you. Yep. So, did you have more you wanted to say on that, Anne? Before we move on to Niati? Um. Uh, that that will do for the moment. <laughs> I can talk for hours. <laughs> we can come back. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, Niadi, what are your thoughts on how how does one learn to trust partners again after abuse? Yeah, yeah, great and really important question. And and it was so great to hear you because um, having lived through uh, an abusive relationship myself with my ex husband, which is now like fifteen years ago or so. Um, my first response was very similar in that the thing that I needed to learn in that experience 
was to trust myself and to take my own side. Mm. And yeah, and what I really liked in what you said, Anne, is you spoke about some of the the barriers or what we sometimes call edges in process work to, you know, your ability to trust yourself and what, what it took from you to do mm. that. Mm. And what I would like to add to that in, in my own experience and working with others is there is often an investment in what we call like a high dream mm. or, you know, what we would want the relationship to be like, our dream, our hope for the relationship. Mm. And so when I look back to the abusive relationship and what I've seen in others too, there were so many signals early on that could have given me the clue. But I oh, didn't want to see that. Right, right. Can, you want can to you say a little that? Yeah, can you say a little more about what sort of early signals one might see that uh, that a relationship is potentially heading in a not great direction? Yeah, so for instance, um this person was a therapist and they led a, an ongoing personal growth group. And this was like one of the first evenings we were together and it was very romantic and we had champagne and somebody mm -hmm. phoned from this workshop and they wanted to um, resign. Basically, they didn't want to continue. And he went off at this person and using their psychology to make them feel less and make them feel bad about their choice. And this person decided to stay, but I was like, I was gobsmacked, but mm -hmm. I didn't want to see that. So I justified it in my own head and kind of rationalized it away. But of course that became the pattern of our, of our relationship. You know, yeah. it, it's funny that the first stage of, uh, I'm not sure if at that stage, Niati, you were falling in love, but even, even just having an enjoyable first date, uh, yeah. People often describe the falling in love process as being an altered state in itself right. in that exactly. you are hit with such a massive wave of uh, of happy chemicals, endorphins and so forth, that you're actually not in a right mind to make decisions. Uh, it's it's the most beautiful biological evolved mechanism to get us into partnership with people and ignore all of those early signals. Because mm -hmm. um, yeah, in the cool light of day, you look back at that and, and say, well, it was just so obvious, right? Mm. Yes, Exactly. But there's one thing I, I wanted to add, and I think this is a really important thing, because the question says, how do I decide to trust again? And I don't think you decide to trust. Trust mm. isn't like a static thing or a product. Trust is very fluid. And trust is an outcome, a natural outcome of having the right conversations, of how we resolve conflict, of, uh, I mean, my current partner, he initiates conversations with me when he feels, you know, he's done something that was hurtful to me. I may not even have noticed that I was, you know, something hurtful happened, but he takes responsibility for it before I've even asked him. So mm -hmm. that's a behavior that gives me enormous trust, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But it doesn't mean that he's always trustworthy. Neither am I. Because mm. I have blind spots. We all have feelings of revenge in us. We all sometimes want to hurt each other. None of us are always trustworthy. Mm. <sighs> True that. It's, a, it's an interesting <laughs> ride being human. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, and I also like something you mentioned a little earlier about your example there, Niati, in that it highlighted um, 
the the way people use ranks and powers. So the the example you spoke of, uh, that person was using their psychological rank uh, against right. someone else. Uh, and I I you know, I don't know if this is a an always statement, but it seems to me always where there's abuse, uh, someone is pulling in a a rank or a power that they have, whether it's physical power and physical violence or psychological rank to manipulate you psychologically or financial rank to control you financially. There's always a rank or a power that's being misused. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah. I think that awareness of the powers we have and how we use them is relevant for every human being on the planet. Oh. Yeah, and Anne, it sounds like in your story there was a bit of uh, institutional rank and power yeah, there as well. Yeah, exactly. And also... One of, one of the things that was interesting in um, clergy sexual assault was uh, spiritual abuse. When somebody represents God, um, oh, yeah. it has <laughs> an added layer. And in fact, yes. we had um, back so back in the early in the in the late eighties, early nineties, no, the term clergy sexual assault hadn't been um, formed yet, hadn't been coined yet, and the car the centres against sexual assault over here, the Casas, they were getting people who were experiencing. Um, religious institutional violence and, and that had this, this element and they didn't quite know what to do them with them and they would send them to us because, um, it, it, they recognized that it was an added layer that they didn't have the skills to, um, to deal with. And we, we formed a resource group for some years, um, supporting women from, you name it, any religion you can think of, we got them. Any, any fact, wow. any, any denomination, mm. any anything, we got them. Wow. Wow, it's big. That's, yeah. that's phenomenal. And, yeah, who wants to go up against God? So if yeah, someone's, exactly. Someone's, yeah. That's all the – you know, that's the highest rank you can the ultimate power. <laughs> <right>? <laughs> big possibly equalize yeah. your rank with God. It's a fascinating journey to, to learn to do that, I can tell you. It's a big ask. Yeah, um, yeah my thoughts on the topic are um, that – if if we're talking about an existing partner, then for me, I, I, I go to thinking it might not be possible. Uh, like once a relationship dynamic and once someone's personality type gets to the point where they're misusing their rank like that, it the often, level of yeah. – yeah, the level of change that is required yeah. um, and the – the quickness with which that needs to happen just just might be impossible. I mean, we might be talking about a minor trust violation, or we might be talking about large scale abuse. Uh, and if it's the oh, latter end the, of that scale, yeah, yeah there's something I really want to say about this, which is you do not have to put up with any of it. One incident, absolutely. You know, if you decide if you experience one incident and you feel like leaving, then leave. That is, yeah. I would really, really, really want to make that point very, very clear. Mm-hmm. Completely agree. Completely agree. And and the whole pattern of thinking, well, it was just the once; it, it shouldn't happen again. There was extraordinary circumstances then, and uh, it was because we were having a fight. So I I kind of brought it on myself. Yep. Ah, huh, no, no, there are no mm. circumstances under you which. But also, and also at the other end of the spectrum, I want to say I've absolutely known people who have been in patterns of, um very, very unhealthy levels of violence who have really learned to change it and have really changed it. But it has taken yep. a massive commitment, particularly yep. um, where, where there appears to be a fairly clear dynamic where one person is 
doing more of the violence and one person is receiving more of the violence. And I know that patterns are complex and I, I want to acknowledge the, that it's not black and white. But I have known people to be able to work through that, but it takes an enormous commitment to change on behalf I, of both. I, I'm also, I admit, um, sort of on the side of hope. I think, I think to continue as a human <laughs> amongst other humans, um, one has to have a fair bit of hope. Um, but uh, yeah, and I, I guess for me, in terms of if, if that hope is to be realised, um, I like what I understand about a restorative justice approach, so I'm not pretending to be trained in that realm, um, but I think uh, from what I understand about it, there's some great mechanisms where it basically says that if it feels like it's of a scale which is worth pursuing within the relationship, then first you need to set up a safe facilitated space and you need um, support people for you, with you in addition to um, the facilitator. Mm. Uh, you need to... Uh, Tell your story and the other person needs to repeat that story back yes. and you get you get veto rights. So if they haven't heard some of the subtleties and the nuances of your story and they haven't really felt it and understood it, then you get to veto the whole process at that point in time. Um, and then once it's all been heard, um, generally the other person sets their reconciliations. And when this is done as an alternative to the uh, uh, to the mainstream justice system, uh, people within a restorative justice approach generally give themselves harder uh, punishments. Is not the right word, but harder harder sentences, harder punishments than the mainstream system does. And it's due to the fact that. They've had to so deeply hear um, the, the story and the, the impacts that they've had on someone else. Nice. I like that a lot. What you what you're saying, Rod. I just want to would love to add one thing to what yeah. you. Yeah. So, you know, what I'm really hearing both of your story, which is, which is also my experience, is that often in you know for the one who is on the receiving end of the abuse, there is a background process of. Um, really befriending and getting to know and getting into your own power. Mm. And so I think that's, you know, that's, uh, I mean, I hate to use this word because it's, it's so horrific to live through it, but in a way that's, you know, having lived through it myself, I can say that's what I gained from it. Like I finally managed to stand up to the bully and uh, that was it, you know, that was uh, no bully has ever had that kind of power over me ever again. Yes. So, you know, I, I yeah. don't recommend it as a path of growth, yeah. but, you know, that is often, yeah. Yeah. No, no, I do. And I think we also have to find a way to say that um, if we just take, say, for the sake of conversation, physical violence – we have to find a way to say it doesn't exist in a void without saying that it's ever acceptable under any circumstances. Mm. Um, and we do need to, particularly if there's a pattern over time, we do need to look at the things within ourselves. I, I know from, yeah, you know, just, just to look at the, uh, abuse I've experienced, they have been exactly as you say, Niadi, they've been a call to my power. Mm. Mm. Mm -hmm. it's, it's, and, it's an interesting ride. And one last thing, just, you know, cause, I think there is a, a real, t you asked the question also, like, what if you've come out of that kind of abuse and now you're with a new partner, right? Who isn't, yeah, who yeah. isn't abusive. And I think one of the things that happens when you come out of an abuse situation is when there are things that seem similar, when my current partner raises his voice, it yeah. triggers a memory mm. for me, right? Yeah. And early on in the relationship, what I would do is I would just 
cut him out, I would just be like, oh, you're one of those. Like, fuck you, fuck off, basically, yeah. right? And in that moment, I became kind of abusive to him. Mm. because he isn't a violent person, but of course he gets, you know, angry and he's got a temper sometimes, but it isn't directed against me. Mm. And so I had to learn to distinguish between what he's doing and my appropriate reactions to that versus my reactions to the past abuse, you know, and that's, that's where this whole thing of, you know, burning your own wood, doing mm. your wow, own work yeah. is really important. Mm. Wow, that's no small task. Um, that's that's amazing. And yay, yay you for being able to see that separation. And that brings in something that um, I have observed a lot. When people are involved in a dynamic where both of them have abuse in their pasts, both of them have emotional triggers and are very sensitive around things, and each of them is feeling abused by the other in different yes. ways. So, for example... Um, Somebody might have um, a, quite a large personal space bubble and they feel like the other person, when they're you know, getting heated, steps in and they are feeling physically threatened by the fact that this person steps into their personal circle. And what they don't realize is that they, their voice has been elevated and that is triggering the other person who is feeling that they are yelling and it, you know, that, that's the thing from their yeah. past. That's just a, an example of a kind of a co-dynamic where each person feels like the other is abusing them. Yes. And each person is feeling, is feeling threatened. And that is terribly complex. It is really hard when you feel like, but I'm the victim here. You should be listening to me to then put aside my own pain enough to listen to the other one and to yeah. have a, 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 a process that involves both people taking it in turns to really listen to the other. And I think that process that you set up, that you, you outlined, Rog, I think it is great for everybody to be able to have the ongoing ability to um, do take it in turns to do reflective listening with each other where you just sit and listen and feedback until the other one feels heard. You yes, know, um, yes. And it's hard work. Yes, it is very hard work. I, I, that's just so beautifully said, Anne, and I, I think tying it together with learning about your power and having those conversations uh, at least to begin with in a facilitated space with mm -hmm. a third party present mm -hmm. so that you can learn those skills of de-escalation and learning mm -hmm. about your power. Mm -hmm. um, I've got a couple of other just before we finish, um, and I'll, I'll, I'll check to see if either of you two have got any closing comments as well, but, um, just a couple of quick practical tips, um, on, on going forwards with new partners. Um, one is, uh, yeah, just to remember that your pace is absolutely perfect. Um, particularly mm -hmm. as we start, if we're talking about sex, your pace is absolutely perfect. And I think one of the roles of the, partner, I'm going back to sort of a, a situation where one person has an abuse history and the other doesn't. If you're the person that doesn't so much have a strong abuse history, um, you could kind of describe that as a bit of a privileged position. I mean that in the most loving way. And part of your role is to share that privilege, which is to just be a little bit of a rock and not take things too personally. I mean, don't let the other person start abusing you. But uh, yeah, share that privilege and recognize that you're in a pretty, pretty unique little spot there. Um, and how would you yes. share that privilege, Rog? How to share it? Um, to recognise that 
In a moment, uh, particularly a moment of sexual exchange where things get a little bit wobbly, even though I'm going to speak in the first person because my sexual abuse uh, history is fairly distant from me these days. So if I'm in a situation with a partner and they're having a bit of a wobble that relates to their more um, more present abuse history, um, even though that's a tricky moment for me, I've just got to remind myself that it's nowhere near as tricky for me as it is for the other person. And if I can share a sense of comfort and joy in my body and in the sex exchange and just uh, stay present to that, then that's what, that's what the privilege of not being abused is about. It's a, it's a relative comfort in your body and with someone else. So yeah. So for me, it's about sharing that. So be that prepared to process your own emotional stuff without dumping it on your partner in part. Um, yes. And I think. Also, it's probably a little bit easier for a person that has a less present abuse history to be calm and cool and lovingly supportive while they set boundaries. Mm. So just gently, softly being able to say, yeah, no, actually, I'm not so much into that at the moment. And and being able to demonstrate that boundaries can be set and can be done fairly easily. Uh, I think mm. that's an important sharing of privilege. Um, and, yeah. if, and I would like to add to that. Um, in terms of sharing the the privilege, being aware of what um, your partner's triggers might look like, being alert to them and understanding, you know, yes, looking for the subtle signals of it because often somebody else can see it before you become aware of it when you're coming out, <laughs> yes. when you especially when uh, your abuse is relatively recent history, um, yes. Quite often other people can see manifestations of you getting close to a trigger before you can. Yes. And, and uh, I think also um, if it's possible for both parties to sort of look at it as a shared project yes. rather than as something yep. that one person has brought and is there to work on um, yep. while they're lonesome. Yeah. Shared project. So I have a final comment about yes. that right around the shared project thing because I really – I I love that idea and I also know that's not always possible or – Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. But um, what I um, in process work sometimes we use the term of uh, picking up a homeopathic drop of the other person. Right. Mm. So, like, where is like a little bit of that energy useful for me? So, as as the one who is experiencing the abuse, right? So, if I think of the bully, right, my my ex, for example. Yeah. If I pick up just 1% of that energy, what it does is it allows me to stand up for myself. So I, you know, it's amplified. The bully is amplified, like his power fills the room, right? And negates everything else. But if we take like the healthy aspect of that, it's the ability to stand for yourself in a very uncompromising way. Yeah, mm. great. So it's like uh, mm. this, this this dynamic, this energy has turned up in my life. In what way could it possibly potentially be just a little tiny bit useful for me? That's right. Mm. That's right. Wow. In a that transformed is. way. Yes. Yeah. Yes, transformed. Yes, because mm. yes. Yeah. Wow. Um, wow. That's <laughs> great conversation. An, yeah. yeah. It's been an amazing conversation. Um, th thank you so much, friends. <laughs> And I would love to hear a little more about uh, what the uh, two of you are up to and where people can find you. So uh, perhaps we'll start with you, Niati. Uh, what do you do? Uh, who are your ideal clients and where can they find you? 
So um, I work as a, a sex positive therapist and a facilitator, and I have a website where you can find me, and it's called alchemyoferos.com, but it's spelled alchemy-of-eros.com. I'm just super excited to work in the sex positive community and I do a lot of work with individual clients and with couples and it's certainly not restricted to sexuality, sexuality and working with sexual issues, sexual shame, um, people wanting to reconnect to their sexuality, um, people working through relationship issues that are often also reflected in their sexuality, um, but also really just personal development and transformation. I'm passionate about working with people who are passionate about their own development, really. It's, it's as, as broad and as narrow as that. <laughs> Fantastic. And uh, Anne, uh, what do you mostly do and who are your ideal clients and where can they find you? Yep. Um, I am a relationships coach specializing in non-monogamy. So um, anybody who's uh, struggling with some aspect of polyamory or ethical non-monogamy or any other form of non-monogamy who wants to um, you know, work toward resolving uh, relationship issues, that's the kind of thing I work with. Um, I work uh, f from Melbourne or on Skype. And uh, my the website... Uh, is your relationship tool belt all one word dot com dot au fantastic and, yeah That's, and uh, yeah but and I, I also run occasional groups around issues like specific issues like jealousy or things like that from time to time yes and your your expertise in that area and your gift to the to the Melbourne community in particular that I've witnessed has been just amazing okay. um. I will. Those contact details will be in the show description notes, uh, and also I'm assuming with the both of you, uh, you both mentioned uh, sexuality and poly. Are you familiar, uh, comfortable taking clients uh, from a diversity of gender uh, representations and sex workers? Yeah. Yes. And do you work with a clients? Any orientation, any gender, any identity. Wonderful. And thanks, friends. You've been listening to Curious Conversations About Sex, brought to you by Curious Creatures. You can find us at curiouscreatures.biz, B-I-Z. Friends, it's Rog again. Wow, that was a really juicy episode. I uh, just want to add a few extra things. Uh, if you're feeling affected by what we've been talking about, please pay attention to that. Uh, you might want to seek support from uh, Lifeline or whoever provides uh, support and referral services where you are. Uh, also, I'm planning on following today's episode with some really practical tips uh, from practitioners with lots of hands-on experience with working with people following sexual abuse. Uh, in the meanwhile, if you're interested in practical tips and you're in Melbourne, you might like one of my workshops, uh, Fun Little Sex Games. I was originally going to call it Therapeutic Little Sex Games because it's all about bringing appropriate amounts of structure and communication into physical play, which tends to give people the relaxation and trust they need to explore their sexuality. Um, it's my experience that this can work wonders for people who identify uh, as having an abuse history and also those that don't. 
Lastly, Anne Hunter from today's episode asked me to mention that she's a relationship coach as opposed to a psychologist or psychotherapist. Thanks, Anne. Love that transparency. And thanks, dear listener, for being interested in such an important topic. Bye for now.